These are not the kind of things that happen in an army that is confident that it's on a path to victory. Bogosian is not a sympathetic figure, nor are any of his soldiers sympathetic figures, his mercenaries. He's a businessman, and he's a showman, and he's uh, quite good at uh, making it look as if he's the only one that's accomplished anything. The Ukrainians are not going to sit around and wait on us. Um, I think their special forces and partisans are working overtime back in the rear. I would hate to be a Russian truck driver or a dude pulling security on the bridge. I mean, it's, it's going to be pretty grim for them. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI, and I'm joined on this episode by retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. He is a former commanding general of U.S. Army Europe, and he has been a keen observer of the ongoing war in Ukraine. Given his background and his understanding of the European security landscape, he has exceptional insights on that conflict, from its strategic framework and implications to the way it's playing out at a tactical level. Like many of us, he was watching the extraordinary events in Russia in recent days as Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner private military company, launched effectively a mutiny in Russia, leading a convoy of military vehicles in a movement toward Moscow before suddenly backing down. There is so much in this series of events that warrants examination, and General Hodges joined me for a quick discussion to share some of his thoughts. Before we get to it, as always, a couple quick notes. First, if you're not yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with General Ben Hodges. General Hodges, sir, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the MWI podcast. Thanks for the privilege. So I asked you to come on the podcast to share your thoughts on what we've uh, been witnessing in in Russia in recent days with the Wagner Group's, um, you know, I guess we can call it an aborted rebellion. There is there's a ton to unpack with these, you know, the the events that we've seen unfold, and there's so much that we can discuss. I know that you have made time during a a finite window in your schedule. Uh, and I don't want to waste any of that time, so we will jump right in. I think the first thing that I want to ask you is, you know, I guess I'm curious what your thoughts were when, um, you know, when you first saw reports on 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 Friday of what was happening. If you, when you first saw the video that uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin released, and then you know the initial movement toward Rostov. So um, I think first of all, everything that we've seen happen in the last four days. These are not the kind of things that happen in an army that is confident that it's on a path to victory. So uh, in addition to revealing uh, enormous cracks and fractures on the uh, political civilian leadership side in Russia, uh, you've got a military uh, that is uh, very uncomfortable with itself, uh, uncertain, uh, which is a result of decades of um, corruption, but also traditionally, the regular army hates mercenaries, uh, they hate the Chechens, and they hate the FSB, the intelligence service. And so uh, all of this has kind of burst onto the scene in plain view now. What's interesting to me, though, um, I was struck not only with how quickly the uh, Prigozhin's mercenaries took over the headquarters in Rostov, 
I mean, my first thought was, okay, obviously this has all been sorted out ahead of time. And uh, he's got people on the inside that had already agreed to this, which should give great concern to Shoigu as well as Putin. But also all day long, I mean, you know, we were all watching this thing unfold. You didn't see too many pictures of uh, senior Russian officials, not even the great patriarch or even Mr. Lavrov or oligarchs. Nobody came out and said, hey, you guys go back to your barracks. This is unacceptable. Nobody. Um, now, not everybody was cheering for for Prigozhin, but <laughs> the fact is they just were kind of like, hey, I wonder how this is going to turn out. And uh, the um, there's sh- several military leaders that should have taken steps to do things, and they didn't. So Putin now has to make a decision. Uh, does he dare do a purge and start killing or getting rid of all these guys that should have stepped up? Or does he does he not have the confidence to do that? That he does, does this generate another mutiny? I just 20 minutes ago saw a tweet that said that uh, Saravikin and his personal staff had been, had been arrested. I don't know that that's true at all. I mean, it's going to take more than one tweet, but you could imagine a big roundup uh, going on just like, you know, the Nazis did after Stauffenberg. I've also seen some comparisons to 2016 in Turkey and the coup or attempted coup in the wake of which uh, Erdogan was actually able to, you know, to, to firm up his grip on power by purging you know, certain of those elements that might have threatened the regime. The thing is, you know, Turkey wasn't fighting a major large scale war at the time, purging disloyal elements from the military while also relying on that military to to prosecute the war is an entirely different uh, proposition. I'd like to ask if, you know, as you're watching the the Wagner convoy heading north toward Moscow, did you have a sense that, you know, that this could be it, that this, you know, could lead to outright civil war, that that Putin's long time in power could could truly be under threat? Um, it did. Um, I did think that this that this could evolve into a civil war, depending on whether or not uh, the military was on side with the government or with uh, Prigozhin, or would they would there be some kind of a reaction? Um, but as I said earlier, is there was no reaction. There was inaction, if you will. And so I think that's part of the reason Prigozhin said maybe people he was counting on um, backed out or he was wrong. Or uh, when I heard 400 vehicles, I thought, okay, who knows what the exact number is, but it's probably between two and 400, even if it was 500. That's nothing. Um, when, when you drive a convoy like that, assuming they didn't get stopped, um, it, would, it would be swallowed up in a, in a metro area as large as Moscow. So I, I was kind of wondering, like, so what's the mission for the guy in charge of the convoy? Is it to go to Red Square and just assume that people will come out and support you or whatever? Your your reference to the uh, Turkish coup, attempted coup, I mean, how many people came out to to protect the government to stop the military? Uh, th- in this case, there was nothing. But we don't know what what did Prigozhin really expect to happen. Um, I think the reason it's proper to call this a mutiny versus a coup attempt is because 
A coup seeks to overthrow the government. I don't think Prigozhin wanted to do that at all. I think um, what he wanted to do was uh, a mutiny, uh, to, to mutiny, which is to gain leverage to change conditions or circumstances, get rid of his archenemy Shoigu uh, and presumably Gerasimov, and also to protect his business. I mean, remember just before this, he was told that hey, you're going to, have to put yourself under the MOD. <laughs> he said, no way. And so um, I think this was about that more than regime change. You mentioned that there's no love loss between the uh, the Russian army and Wagner, uh, as well as, you know, like you said, between the army and, and the Chechen forces under uh, Kadyrov. In a sense, it's almost like, you know, small scale coalition warfare where multiple troop contributors each have uh, each have their own interests, their own equities. It's just that at this, you know, in this case, it's at this extreme level with extraordinarily high tensions, uh, especially between the Ministry of Defense and the military on one hand and and Wagner and Wagner's leadership on the other. Can you talk a little bit more about those uh, those dynamics between between these different stakeholders? Well, of course, one of the principles of war is unity of effort, unity of command. Um, and the what the Russians have is the opposite of that. Uh, you don't have a coherent command structure where you've got a, uh, you know, the chief of the general staff, then you've got operational commanders, you've got, you know, the services, the service chiefs. Uh, they, they have not from day one demonstrated a single uh, degree of joint capability. I mean, there's been no joint operations at all uh, the entire time. Uh, no amphibious operations uh, to support land maneuver. The Air Force is not flying close air support. Um, it, there's no jointness. It, it's not in their culture. And, and I think that is because the rivalry in, uh, between uh, not, not only the warlords that we talked about already, but also inside the services. It's, it's, not, it's not even, I don't even think it crosses their mind. Uh, they don't exercise that way and they don't fight that way. And so... Um, the potential for corruption, um, the existence of corruption. There is no trust between any of these guys. Um, and, and so uh, one of the impacts of all this, I think, is um, it's hard to have a logistic system that can sustain operations when nobody trusts anybody um, and there's corruption out there and soldiers are selling fuel, siphoning off things, diverting equipment. I mean... That's if you're in a large scale, high intensity conflict and you can't trust that your logisticians are going to kill themselves trying to get you what you need. Uh, that's not a good thing. And um, the if, if I'm a Russian, let's say a company commander or even a battalion commander, we're out there in these trenches uh, as the Ukrainians are starting their counteroffensive. And I'm wondering what's going on above me and behind me. I mean, I'm thinking. This whole thing could collapse. I don't want to be killed or terribly wounded here in the last days or weeks of what looks like it might be a losing, um, a losing cause. That's what I meant, that armies that are confident that they're on the path to victory don't have the problems that we just saw over the last four days. Um, so I, I think the Ukrainians obviously already spot this, and, and they've been intensively messaging to Russian troops saying, you do not have to die here. Your enemies are in Moscow, not here. 
So I think the Ukrainians will uh, seek to um, exploit this. And then finally, I mean, I'm not entirely confident that the number of Wagner troops is 25,000. That's the number that I see flying around. But I mean, I don't trust any number that comes out of Russia anyway. But let's say it's 15,000. Um, that will be difficult to replace. I mean, 15,000 veterans, even if they're all criminals or thugs or whatever, that's 15,000 troops with equipment um, that have already been fighting. And uh, now now they're gone. They're Because these guys, with Wagner being disbanded, apparently, at least the ones that were there, their, their choices are to leave, uh, go to Belarus, or um, join the Russian army. I don't think a lot of them are going to want to join the Russian army. You mentioned that, you know, it's tough to trust any of the numbers uh, that we read or that we hear. Uh, that being said, I remember a report in, I believe in January, that assessed up to 50,000, I think, Wagner personnel were in Ukraine at that time. Uh, Prigozhin recently said, and again, you know, we have to take what he says with a grain of salt, but he said that he had had you know, 20,000 Wagner personnel killed in the fight for Bakhmut. Whatever the real numbers are, they're large. And the departure of these forces from uh, from the theater is going to leave a big hole. You have been a senior military leader, so I'd like you to kind of put that hat on. And, you know, if you look at that problem from the Russian perspective, how do you go about addressing it? Do you have to essentially, you know, it, plug this big hole in the front lines? And on the flip side, you know, from the Ukrainian perspective, how does a campaign plan or how can a campaign plan be adapted to, you know, to take advantage of this as an opportunity? Well, um, of course, we don't know. I don't know um, exactly how Wagner uh, was accounted for in the Russian order of battle. I mean, what was the agreement? What uh, did he just pick and choose where he was going to go? It, it didn't appear to me he was taking any orders from anybody. Um, but yet he blamed the, the, the military for not keeping him supplied with ammunition, which I think turns out was, uh, was false. Um, so I don't know if the Ukrainians were trying to account for them as they had a sector or they were, after they pulled out of Bakhmut, uh, were they a force that could be used to counterattack or, so I, I don't know how the Ukrainians accounted for the Russians, the Wagner on the, uh, uh, OB, um, I would imagine, though, that uh, the biggest response of the Ukrainians is going to be uh, exploit this um, friction, this chaos, this uh, um, incoherence on the Russian side through information. I mean, all kinds of, you know, traditional sort of PSYOP stuff, but also various other. I mean, they know who they all are. I mean, they, they can contact. They know these guys. Um, and so, uh, I think that the, um, uh, Ukrainians will be smart on how they sort of add to the dissension, add to the mistrust add cause people to say, well, why am I here? I don't want to get killed here. I mean, what am I even here for? So I think that will be the most obvious way that they try to take advantage of this. And what effect does it have, uh, do you think, on the chances of, of success for Ukraine's counteroffensive? Well, um, 
Of course, the, the immediate objective for the Ukrainians is to be able to penetrate these uh, obstacle belts and and that sort of thing. And it's very difficult if you're under fire trying to do that. So if they can create a situation where Russian defenders don't want to stay there, um, you know, that, that, that will be one aspect of it. But the other aspect is um, getting people in the rear uh, to panic and, and, and not be confident about what they're doing so that artillery and logisticians and all these guys, transporters are not willing to stick around and, and to, for headquarters to be confused about what's going on. Uh, which is why the, the, from, in my view, the top priority of, of capability that Ukraine needs is long range precision strike capability. They can hit these headquarters logistics hubs, that are beyond uh, GMLRS range or beyond storm shadow range. So um, that I, I don't understand why the administration continues to refuse to provide the ATACMS uh, ground launch, small diameter bomb, uh, Gray Eagle drone. I, I don't understand that. What you're describing, um, penetrating Russian lines, being able to create panic in rear areas, in command posts and headquarters, in, in, in logistics depots, it, it sounds like a recipe for a route, which, you know, this would be a dramatic change from the sort of attritional war that we've seen, especially uh, as lines were, were largely static over the winter months. It would potentially mean, you know, Russia's war effort collapsing catastrophically. Do you think that that's a possibility? Uh, it absolutely is a possibility, uh, but the U.S. has got to lead the way on this. Uh, we have got to take the gloves off and say, look, we want Ukraine to win. And I'm afraid what's happening is that the administration is anxious about Ukraine winning and bringing about the collapse of Russian government. That I think the Chinese don't want that. Uh, I think the administration uh, is overly concerned about the possibility of nuclear escalation. And so because of that, they, they stop short of doing everything that's needed for Ukraine to actually win. But uh, the Ukrainians are not going to sit around and wait on us. Uh, I think their special forces and partisans are working overtime back in the rear. I would hate to be a Russian truck driver or a dude pulling security on a bridge. I mean, it's, it's going to be pretty grim for them. And so uh, I think a lot of that is going on in the Russian rear area. And once you get panic back there, and, and once they get a penetration in one or two places, I mean, significant penetration, then things can start picking up. Uh, a, a sort of momentum. The Ukrainians have only committed about 20% of their brigades so far. So most of it's, they're back there sharpening their bayonets, you know, and cleaning their weapons, waiting to be sent in once a vulnerability or a crack has been created. So just to sort of drill down um, and maybe get a little bit more detailed on, on how much of a problem this loss of Wagner forces is for Russia. I want to ask again about this perception that, you know, that Wagner is perhaps more effective as a fighting force than many of the uh, conventional, at least, Russian military units, especially those largely filled at this point by recently mobilized uh, personnel. How accurate is that, uh, you know, that perception? Or is it really more of a function of, you know, Wagner's large numbers of volunteers from prisons and its willingness to essentially throw them into the meat grinder and and accept just, you know, massive numbers of casualties? I think, um, you know, Prigozhin is not a sympathetic figure, nor are any of his soldiers sympathetic 
figures, his mercenaries. He's a businessman and he's a showman and he's uh, quite good at uh, making it look as if he's the only one that's accomplished anything. I don't know if I would brag that after it took me 10 months to capture uh, Bakhmut at the cost of that many troops. Um, so who knows uh, how good they really are compared to, say, one of the Russian BDV airborne units, although most of them have been decimated and, you know, they've lost their, so many of their experienced soldiers. So I don't know if there's any Russian unit that you could point to and say, and those guys are really good um, because I doubt many of them have more than 10 or 15% of their original sort of cadre. I don't know that, but that's just my sense. Um, but in a war of attrition, you know, when you lose 15 or 20,000 troops off the table, um, all of which, all of whom have experience, you know, that you're going to, that's going to be a gap that the Russians have to fill somehow. So Prigozhin is reportedly now in Belarus. A number of his forces are, are presumably following them, following him there. Is this over? What we saw begin on Friday, is it over? I, I absolutely don't think it's over. It's, uh, there's still a lot more that we're going to learn in the coming days and weeks. Um, I think uh, um, that we don't know the nature of the deal, what it really was. Um, I think Putin is trying to figure out, can he afford not to get rid of people or can he afford to take the risk that, you know, he generates another mutiny if he does start a purge? Um, I think, uh, of course, I don't know this, but it's hard to imagine that Vladimir Putin is still in power by the end of this year, uh, especially if he does not smash Prigozhin and, and every officer and oligarch that should have stopped uh, stood out, but didn't. <clears throat> I think, uh, and I don't see the war getting any better for Russia at all. I mean, it's not like they've got this big force waiting to come into the fight. Uh, British intelligence a few months ago said 95% of the Russian army was committed in Ukraine. That's why when, when the Wagner convoy started moving, you know, that was a road march. I mean, other than a few helicopters coming after him, which most of which got shot down, there was there was no force out there because I don't think they have a force. Um, unless I've just completely missed the fact that this was all a big, gigantic pre-planned thing. But that that would require some degree of sophistication and planning and OPSEC if this whole thing was uh, theater. Um, Stutton. And for what reason? I mean, Putin looks like a, a, a very weak, tired, little old man, you know, as, where somebody now has pulled the curtains back. Yeah, it's almost unfathomable uh, that, that that Vladimir Putin would give the green light to any sort of you know choreographed act of theater that ends with him looking like anything but a strong man with a firm grip on power. And, and that's the opposite of how he looks, frankly, just a few days removed from uh, from these events. I know you've got a very busy schedule, so I won't keep you any longer. Uh, but I want to thank you again for making some time to talk to me today and and to share your thoughts on uh, some really extraordinary extraordinary events. Thank you for uh, your flexibility and for giving me an opportunity. I like your format, and I'm also impressed with your will to communicate. Uh, experiencing uh, Wi-Fi troubles and uh, uh, you know communication is 10% technology and 90% willpower. So you, you did it.
<laughs> yeah, we did have some connectivity issues entirely on my end. I uh, I appreciate your patience, and I hope I hope I'll have gotten this edited well enough that that uh, that listeners uh, won't have noticed. But thank you again, sir. Okay, man. Good luck. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing. If you aren't following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, research, and more that we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.